Hey, Justin here, and today we have a special episode from Talking Venture, the new show I created for Vitalize Venture Capital. We are interviewing VCs and founders on that show every single week, also spilling some details on the intricacies of running a fund, starting a company, bringing in operators as well. Subscribe to Talking Venture on all the podcasting platforms. Let's get into the episode. Today's guest is Jared Tingle, managing partner of Harlem Capital, a fund that was founded in 2015 with a mission to fundamentally and forever change the face of entrepreneurship. They're aiming to invest in a thousand diverse founders over the next 20 years. They started with a $40 million fund in 2019 and now have $174 million in assets under management. Let's dive in. Jared, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, I'm excited to chat. I mean, heard so much about Harlem Capital, and I think we've co-invested in a, a deal or two as well. For the seven people who don't know Harlem Capital, <laughs> what, are you, what are you guys doing, Jared? Yeah, we're, we're a C-stage VC firm focused on investing in people of color and women, primarily in the U.S., um, we are all about community. We're all about building in public. Uh, we've done 25 investments so far out of our first fund, and we're just getting started. Yeah, just getting started. Raise another fund, which we can get into as well. And I want to go back to the beginning, though, because I know I've heard a bit about your story, a bit about how it all kind of came about. But in the early days, take me through the you talking to Henri and about like starting this thing in the first place. I want to hear how that kind of got started. Yeah, the origin story. So. The co-founders, me, Henri, Brandon, we all met through a talent pipeline program in college. So we've been friends since 2011 or so, um, got acquainted, hung out in the city, et cetera, as we all started banking. But Henri and I actually worked at the same private equity firm a few years into our careers. Black-owned shop, really great experience. Um, we loved investing. Uh, one thing that was frustrating, though, is that you know, as associates, we didn't get carry, we didn't get co-invest. And so... We wanted to do more and also we just saw all that was happening in tech and thought there was no better way than just to, to invest for ourselves so we had talked about it and one day Henri just leaned over and said hey jared do you want to put in 10k each and we're like sure and so we called up a few roommates by the end of the day we had 50k and we were off getting started um so we just started talking i guess every two weeks we had meetings trying to get our criteria together uh deploying in the companies Fast forward, you know, developed the name Harlem Capital, um, invest in a few small businesses, then pivoted to just doing venture only. Um, diversity wasn't originally in our strategy, but we realized that that was the greatest need and also where we could have the most kind of impact and the arbitrage candidly, because we knew so many people of color that had great ideas, but were having a hard time getting funding. Uh, so that was the origin story. I mean, we did six VC-like deals um, with our own money. I'm trying to think, probably put like 60 grand, 50 grand of my own money in um, and eventually got the idea to raise a fund and it's been off to the races since. All right. I want to dive into that more because one of the things you had mentioned in some other shows and other interviews is, you know, we need more kind of emerging managers and more diverse GPs in order to kind of change the wave of diversity in VC. So I want to go through more details around raising the fund because I think it'll be helpful for others who are kind of thinking about this potentially in those early days with the first fund. So it's a bit of a challenge. I saw, I think, a YouTube video about you guys pitching uh, an LP at one point in time, which is another thing we'll get into. But raising that first fund, how did you approach that, Jared? I think we did okay. I mean, it's always hard to fundraise, particularly for your first fund. And we just had a couple of knocks against us. I mean, we're young, under 30, 
no venture experience outside of our angel investing. You know, we're, we're black men raising. The, the odds were stacked against us. Um, but one thing we did do is just really focus on um, what we what our strengths were and, and trying to go from there. Um, so we spent probably months on our pitch deck. I mean, we were on like V90 or something by the time <laughs> we finally decided to go to market. Um, we started off, we kind of had a false start where we tried to reach out to a bunch of people around a big HBS African-American conference fell flat. I think we just didn't realize how personal you have to be with fundraising rather than sending out, you know, kind of mass emails. Um, we were fortunate to have Henri and I, we both had a, a fellowship or a stipend to kind of work on it between our first and second year of business school. So we spent that summer to really focus all in on fundraising and just take it more seriously. So we went to colleagues, professors, friends, family, uh, raised a couple million our first summer. We did get some high profile meetings. You know, getting a meeting is one thing, converting that meeting is totally different. Um, so we didn't come back with a lot of enthusiasm about it, but we did get a little bit of money. Uh, but the biggest inflection point was getting a private equity, uh, like a legendary private equity investor in as one of our first big checks. And from there, his wife introduced us to uh, TPG. And from there, it was kind of off to the races when they became our anchor investor. Uh, but a lot of meetings, a lot of strategy sessions, a lot of beating our head against the wall. Uh, but eventually, once we had that first anchor to kind of take that bet on us, things got a lot more straightforward. And by then, we also knew our story better. So we knew what questions we were going to get asked. And we kind of took some things that were kept, like kind of kidding us off guard out of the deck. And then we finally were able to kind of present the best case going forward. What, what were some of those things that were maybe caught you off guard or things that it, questions that you got repeatedly that you had to kind of adjust your story on? Because I know if people were raising the fund, they're going to get these things. So I'd love to provide any, any tangible things there, things you remember from from that that maybe helped you shape your story and shaped your deck, obviously, to eventually raise that you know, 40 million it ended up being in the first fund. Sure. So I think what helped the most, we had a classmate a year ahead of us who worked at a funds of funds. And she's like, hey, like LPs care about three things, team, strategy, and track record. Your track record is going to be light because all you have are your angel deals. So make sure to double click on your team and strategy. And then for your track record, just have the kind of best way to package your deals. So that mindset shift helped us a lot. I think the flow changes too. Like your flow has to be really good. You have to make sure you hook people. You have to get them early. Same way you're, if you're interviewing, that first minute, that first 30 seconds really sets the stage. Um, so having a flow that made sense, you know, opening up with the team, once we had those notable investors, like that big private equity Titan, having that page up front where we say, Hey, here are our notable investors change the conversation. The biggest thing that we took out is we had a page where we're talking about, or two pages, actually one was, um, like deals that would potentially be in our thesis, but we're like later stage. So here's what we could have invested in with the strategy five years ago. And that really tripped us up because a lot of times the LPs know those deals better than we did because they knew someone who invested in it. Like, oh, but yeah, like her husband's a hedge fund manager. Oh, he had all this help from Goldman and like all this stuff. And we're like, we don't know any of this information because it's all private. So we took that out. And the other deck or other page that really tripped us up was just like current pipeline um, where we're talking about deals that we had in our funnel. And this was tough because people want to ask you all the questions in the world, like you invested already, but if you're still evaluating the company, you may not know it. So from then on, we only talked about deals that we had done. 
Um, and then the last thing that we did strategically outside of the pitch was just really getting warm introductions for those meetings. Um, you know, having someone else who knows this individual or this institution lend their credibility, set the stage right, put them in a spirit of yes or closer to yes before you even get in makes a world of difference. And so with all those changes, we're able to, to really have a much more effective uh, fundraising strategy. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And and with that as well, so with raising that first fund, I'm curious about a couple of things, but one being, did you know you always wanted to play in the seed stage? Did you think about pre-seed? Did you think about, you know, farther along? Uh, I'm thinking about, you know, investing in kind of diverse founders and obviously they need help at the earliest stages as well. I know like Charles Hudson, a precursor, invests super early, you know, pre-product, pre-anything, just basically idea he'll invest in. How did you guys decide on where you wanted to kind of invest at least to start with for Harlem Capital? Mm-hmm. So our experience was with our angel deals, but also with our private equity experience. I think the private equity experience had a really profound impact on us because we love the firm, we love the team, but one thing that they didn't do was invest in people of color or women founders or entrepreneurs or yeah. management teams, right? Because at that stage, at that size level where you're trying to get $10 million EBITDA plus companies, there's not going to be many opportunities that are ran by diverse teams. Um, and we're like, huh, why is that? There's all this wealth creation happening in private equity and like we're not benefiting really at all. And once we actually double clicked on it, we found that the firm, they actually wanted to do uh, a strategy focus on the black market in the beginning, but there weren't enough opportunities of that scale. And we, when we thought about it, you think about the wealth gap, you think about all the challenges getting capital, it makes sense why there's not a lot of companies at the later stage. So you kind of do have to start early. That's the only place where you can actually have a really robust selective strategy at this time. And hopefully in five, 10 years that changes and you can be uh, you know, an A-focused fund or gross-focused fund with this mission. Um, we wanna grow into that, but, but at the beginning, there's such a capital need upfront. You know, minorities are starved for capital in the beginning. Yeah. Um, and so we saw that as the best business strategy for us to, to get started with. And from there, it's been proven out. And one of the things with Harm Capital, so I know just from kind of even before I got into venture, knew the name, knew of you guys. I think a lot of people have heard about you. You've made a splash early on. How did you think about the the brand, the content strategy behind this? Because you guys have done a great job with it so far. I'd love to dive deeper into that and how that plays a part into what you do at Harm Capital. Yeah, we, we iterated on it a fair amount. Um, in the beginning, we just did what was natural to us. I mean, the name, we were all living in Harlem at the time, and we just knew the name has so much history as a you know, really key cultural center for Black people with a robust history, particularly in the arts and music. And we're like, hey, what if we did this for tech? Um, but we knew the name was a global name that people knew, and it just it, it made you feel some type of way when you heard it, you know? And so from there, we decided that that's where we kind of wanted to go. And you know, whether it was gonna be Harlem Ventures or whatever, with the Harlem Capital or Harlem Capital Partners in the beginning, you know, it wasn't just a venture strategy. It could potentially expand into growth or, or buyouts. And so we wanted to make sure we have the capability and flexibility to expand if we wanted to later. Um, in terms of like our, our branding strategy, it definitely helped to have an influence in our team, Brandon Bryant, who, you know, had you know, 150K plus followers on Instagram, knew how to take great pictures, knew how to set up you know, staging. And so we had that element, but also we're just, we're young. And so we're, we're social media natives. We all had our own pages and we just thought that was a great way to distribute what we're trying to do. Like it's one thing to have a great product, 
it's a completely different thing to distribute it well and make sure you get in front of people. Um, and so we just posted it whenever we were doing something on our personal pages, eventually we put up the firmer's brand. We've just been doubling and triple down on it because we saw how it affect everything. We, we sourced better deals. People knew of us before we got in the room and we're like, hey, this is working. Let's keep keep doing it. And I think to, to that point of, of you guys doubling down, tripling down and what you built with that, you've had like 6,000 or something applicants for your intern program, which I think is incredible. And seeing that number is just, it's a testament to obviously what you're doing inherently, but then also the brand that you built up to be able to have so many people want to be a part of it. Take me through the intern program, how that came about, how you run that, because I think it's, it seems like such an advantage for you guys in terms of everything you do. I'd love to hear more about how you kind of think through that. Yeah. And one thing you'll notice kind of tying the last question to this one is that we personified the brand um, and not a lot of funds do this as much as we have, but like we have pictures of us everywhere. Uh, yeah. <laughs> initially, I was skeptical. I'm like, hey, this is working. People need to see what we're doing. It goes to building in public kind of change the yeah. narrative on what VC investors or what entrepreneurs look like. We think that is very, very important. And it just welcomes people in. Like you actually see these individuals. But on the flip side, we're not individual stars, right? I mean, we actually do put the platform first. Some other firms, they have like one GP who's out there all the time. We all share the spotlight. And I think this made us stronger as a brand. Uh, but our intern program, it started out when we were fundraising for Fund One. Uh, we definitely had a lot of work we needed to do you know, on the diligent side, on the market research side, and we're like, hey, how do we get help? I think the one concern particularly that I had was like, how do we actually devote the time and resources to serving the needs of the interns? Like you have to invest in them, you have to make sure they're having a good experience. Like what is that time coming gonna look like? Uh, so we actually settled on a part-time program uh, that would be the best of both worlds where they could come in, have a great value experience, we wouldn't have to worry about them like trying to figure out, you know, how to spend 50 hours a week or trying to staff them for that much work. Yeah. Um, so that was really the origin of it. Uh, and then we just made sure to be super efficient with our, our application process and it exceeded expectations. Our classes were so strong. Um, as you mentioned, we've seen 6,000 applicants. This is over 11 classes. We've had 64 people actually cycle through between existing and current interns. We've hired three, um, 17 total have went into investing either in private equity or VC. We're very proud of that. Um, the composition, you know, usually we'll have one undergrad, you know, maybe half the class will be MBAs. The other half will be working full-time, working for us part-time. And these people are so incredibly talented. They just haven't had that one shot to get started in VC. Um, and so we're providing an on-ramp where like they have the skills they just need that foot in the door so they can go and be more marketable. And it's been working out phenomenally for everyone involved. With that, how do you structure it in terms of like what they're working on, who works on what? Because people have different skill sets, I'm sure, who come to you. I know we've kind of been thinking through this at Vitalize as well in terms of like how do we kind of put people in the best seats uh, to be successful? How do you think about that in terms of different positions? Or is it kind of like they kind of get a breadth of everything? I would love to hear just more about how you think through that. Yeah, we look at it from a whole class. I mean, we try to make sure we have a lot of different types of people represented in terms of industry, in terms of background, race, gender, et cetera. And like everyone's strong, we also think about how the class will interact with each other. In terms of the structure, about half their time is spent on deal diligence, like helping us actually evaluate companies and hopefully close them. Um, and then the other half is ad hoc projects. Market research has been huge, doubles with social media content. 
like they'll write blog posts, they'll help us with our newsletter, they'll interview people on our podcast. And it's been amazing from a scale perspective. And for their perspective, they get to learn. One thing we try to do is be very transparent. So we actually have them on our deal calls. We talk about everything, fundraising, admin, whatever. And so anyone who's trying to build a firm will learn a lot from working with us. There's not a, a whole lot that we, we don't share with our interns. Um, so that's how we think about it. Yeah, and it seems to be so helpful. And one of those things where you're putting the work up front to make sure you have this process in place, but then you've ran multiple cohorts. Obviously, you're doing three, I think you said three a year um, as well, which lets you do a lot of different things with that. And, we get and so, feedback. We have feedback for yeah. the middle and the end of the internship. So some of our best ideas have came from intern. They're like, hey, like I like this to be different. I like this to be different. One thing we didn't have was like a lot of like hardcore VC curriculum. And so we started to have a playbook of things that people could take away. So even if you don't get to work on it during the summer, you still converse in it and you still have that toolkit. Um, so that, that's been huge and massive for us so far. How has that program evolved since the first cohort to like now? I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think in the beginning we were just kind of fumbling around like what they would actually be working on. Now it's pretty cut and dry. Like we used to have a tough time onboarding. Now we have some Loom videos where they just literally like have a walkthrough of all our trackers and whatnot. Um, we're wasting less time. Like we used to have all these steps when we're doing a deal like okay we do a round one deal screen a round two deal screen but now we know like usually the best thing is to have an initial call with the founder and then like is it a high priority deal or not and we have this checkpoint uh in our deals process called a pre-memo where like after we talk to a team after we make sure it checks our boxes let's look at um two things one is investor feedback how does the market respond to this founder in this company versus competitive landscape and two, can the math actually work? Can this be a deal that can return our fund? So these are two things we used to do at the end of our process. Now we do earlier on and it just saves everyone's time. It helps us move quicker on deals and it helps us also just make sure that um, we don't waste the entrepreneur's time as well. Like if there's things that will make this a non-starter for us, let's get that out the way early so everyone is, is on board. And for the founders listening as well, then diving a little bit deeper into that. I mean, what are you looking for? What are some of the things like, obviously you can only make a certain number of investments and you raise a new fund that I think you said you're going to make 45 investments out of in total. Um, and that will be, that's, that's a small amount, obviously getting to the point of doing your 50 a year to get to a thousand, which we can talk about in terms of your goal. But what, how are you evaluating founders? What are you looking for in the founders you invest in? Sure. So we have an investment box with four things. It's team, market, product, and ownership. So very strong team is always preferred someone with a unique reason why they should be starting the company. If you have relevant domain experience, great. If you're technical, great. If you're a repeat founder, great. We don't expect everyone to have all these things, but any one of those things can make you very appealing. Um, we look for big market opportunities. Um, I guess you can create a market. It's less likely, but it's possible. But yeah, there's some markets VCs don't like. We could be more flexible, but we like to have tailwinds. Like, is are there things macro that are pushing this industry in the right direction? Um, in terms of product, we want differentiated business model, uh, good unit economics, or at least a path to good unit economics. Like some models just will never work. They'll burn a lot of cash. We don't want to do that. Some models scale really well. That's what we're going to try to do. Uh, then ownership. Can we get seven to 10% ownership for our first fund for fund two? It'll be more like 10 plus percent. Like, can we actually own enough of the company that with a good outcome, it'll actually be meaningful in terms of dollars returned back to us. Um, so those are how we think about it. I mean, I personally like founders that can sell. Um, I think yep. selling is so important. 
because it means you can get customers, you can inspire a team, uh, you know, you can handle those those things, you can negotiate well, you can get downstream capital, right? Like all those things are huge. Now some people optimize for technical founders. If I had to choose between someone that can sell, someone who's technical, I probably would choose between someone that can sell. Um, and also someone who's analytical, someone that can actually assess the market, the business and competitive landscape with data and use the data to make informed decisions. Uh, we find that to be increasingly important because it's one thing to say, hey, I want to get to $100 million of revenue in five years. It's another thing to actually say, hey, I need this much customers. I need this price point. I need this penetration level and actually building it up. Otherwise, if you don't have a plan with smart goals, right, it's very, very tough to do it. And you rarely yeah. will exceed your expectations, at least in the beginning. And so we love people that actually have that analytical rigor to help them get there. Just to double click on the selling part, obviously wanting founders who can sell, which for many reasons is important for, you know, getting getting employees, getting co-founders, getting uh, you know, eventually getting more investors down the line. But how do you kind of evaluate that? Or how do you check for that when you're having these companies come to you, you're having calls with founders? How do you evaluate if they can sell? You think they're going to be potentially great at doing that in the future? I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, the diligence process usually teases it out. I mean, you know, we usually have probably three calls, you know, maybe one with just the partner, another one maybe with the deal team, and then we have a final one with our part, a full partnership. Uh, where we have like a full team call. And just by, by being able to answer our questions, usually we, we can assess that. We also do references, but like it's one of the things you just feel out. Um, and we have like a rubric with seven key things, like notes for the money, grit, passion, self-awareness. All these things are kind of related to the ability to sell. But also we look for people that are truthful, right? Like you don't want to be oversold. Like, are you actually backing things up, you know, or are you like trying to BS us, right? And just by evaluating so many deals, we're able to tease it out. I mean, we're really looking for one to hundred companies to invest in. The ones we get really excited about are the one in a thousand opportunities. Um, yeah. so a lot of it just comes with reps and our team, we all look at the world differently. So if you're able to get, win us all over, you're strong. Um, you know, Henri and I have, have rarely both been positive on a deal. Uh, if you get us both, even like one of us positive, one of us neutral, it means you're probably in the top decile of founders. Take me through that part of it with, with your, your other people on your team and how you're assessing deals. And you said, obviously you have different views for different people. So clearly, how does that go in terms of the relationship you have with the people on the team and how you build that and how you understand that, you know, you may be okay in a deal. Someone may be hot in a deal, but you can go through with it. Like, how does that go in terms of that with Harlem Capital? Yeah. So we, we love debate. Um, and we have huge memos. Our memos can be like 50, 70, 80 pages sometimes. Whoa. Um, they are landscape. They're like presentation format. So it's not as crazy as like, you know, a Word doc portrait, but we, our goal is to have everything you need to invite the opportunity in that presentation, like all the notes, yeah. all the market research, because it just enables the rest of the team to have an informed discussion and it enables for a more robust debate. Um, one thing that helps is that we're mission driven. And so no matter you know how heated things get, we know we're all trying to do the same thing and we're trying to find the best way there. So that helps. We're also friends, we have a great culture. And so you know even if we beat each other up on a deal, like we'll be back hanging out the next day, that's no problem. But in terms of our process, um, the structure matters. And, and one thing like I pay attention to human psychology and I just know that like you can optimize for more uh, better, for more productive discussions, but also better outcomes. 
So like, I think your process really does drive that and we've made modifications. So I, I talked about it a little bit earlier with our, our streamlining, but one thing that we realized we hated is that like, we're on a full team partner meeting call. And so I was like, hey, I don't know what this company does. You just dropped this on us. Like, why are we even looking at this? This is, we're never gonna do this deal. Like, that's never <laughs> what you want to happen because <laughs> the team gets mad, you waste the founder's yeah. time, people's body language may show it and like, it just makes you look bad as a firm. Um, so we, we learned the hard way there. Um, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying. So the first interaction we have with an entrepreneur is like, hey, the partner assesses this. Like one is to check our boxes, like the four things I mentioned, one. Two, is the industry attractive? Is the founder strong? Perfect. From there, do that pre-memo. And I mentioned what goes in the pre-memo, but we actually do the pre-memo before any other partners meet with the team. So by the time we actually do a pre-memo, people are informed about the company, they're informed about the references, they know about the math, or work. like, all right, it checks enough boxes. Now should we take a full team call? And from there, people end up, you know, in a lot better, you know, a lot better mindset. You ask all your hard questions. So by the time we even talk to the founder, we're generally positively inclined. And what that means is like by the time we get off the call, we're usually able to make a decision, uh, you know, roughly like, hey, are we gonna move forward or not? And then this competitive deal, we can give a term sheet, we can give an indication. And then by the time we get to our full like investment approval process, it's usually a formality. There's it's rare that we'll like decline a deal at, at that point. Um, so that's pretty much how we go about it. I mean, we try to have ranking systems. Our, our voting helps too, where like you can be positive, neutral, or negative on a deal. Um, you don't need everyone to be positive on a deal. You just need, you know, one positive partner and the rest of the team to be the rest of the partners to be neutral. Um, if there's like a, a split where like one's positive, one's negative or something, then the rest of the team has to be unanimously positive. So it's, we try to have a mix between being um, you know, consensus versus conviction driven. We score every deal from one to 10. And we also are looking to assess trends uh, because if we see that our deals that were scored higher tend to perform better, that will allow us to iterate because ultimately it takes seven to 10 years to see a company X and return capital potentially. Um, and you can't wait that long to improve your process and your decisions. So we're always trying to collect yeah. data and try to iterate for the better whenever we can. Yeah. And that's one of the the biggest challenges of this whole industry in terms of in starting investing. It's like, you don't actually know if you're great yet in terms yeah. of the, the outcomes. And you have maybe on paper outcomes as if they're marked up because of the next round, but you don't know for sure if they've exited what the actual, you know, cash on cash return is. And it's, it's interesting to be in the industry, to think about it from that perspective, like you have to have such like process in place and everything like that, which yeah. I appreciate you sharing for other managers who are kind of thinking about that same thing. And one of the things I know I wanted to bring up. I did up want to add one thing real quick. Go ahead. Sorry to cut you off. I mean, yeah. Our product is decision-making and so yeah. you have to really think about that. Like, are you having high quality decision-making and are you improving it every time you get new data points? Um, so that's one thing yeah. that we're, we are laser focused on. And I agree with you, right? Like there's so many paper markups, ultimately all that matters is cash on cash, DPI, distributed capital back. But there are signals that your company is progressing. Um, and so some of the best firms are focused on C to series A conversion. Because even though it's not like a guaranteed proxy, it means at least you're hitting that first key milestone to, to growth. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. And also one of the things with that, with I'm just thinking about everything you guys are doing at Harm Capital and uh, even just with uh, mentioning the 6,000 applicants for your intern program as an example, the brand is growing. Uh, you obviously raised uh, another another fund to fund two. 
And with that, you're getting more and more founders, I imagine, coming to you. How do you say no? How's that process of saying no gone for you? Has it gotten easier? How do you do it in a tactful way? Like, I'm curious as to how that goes, because I imagine some founders being like, oh, harm capital, investing in people of color, women, like, great, like, I want to get them. And then you have to say no to a lot of founders, to most founders. How does that go for you, Jerry? Yeah, it was something we had to learn. Um, and this is definitely where we're reminded that we are a startup too. Like we are first time fund, or I guess second time fund now. We've been yeah. around six years. And so like we fumble, like we, we've had times where it hasn't gone that well, but you just try to get better. Uh, and the, the tough part is, I mean, reputation is everything. And so if you do have even one or a couple of bad interactions with founders, it does follow you. Uh, we worked hard to try to, to stay in front of that. I think two things have happened. One is that we've gotten better and more tactful with our process and how we say no. Other thing happened is that our brand is bigger and we have more money. So to start with the second point first, we used to get like crazy emails, like super disrespectful. <laughs> People don't do that as much because our brand's bigger. So they feel like they, they have a second thought about doing that, but they also know that like we're established. And so like you're less likely to ever email you know, Andreessen or Sequoia, like, hey, like, F you, like, you're not going to do that because you know it can yeah. mess you up. And like the farther you get through time, the closer we are to, to being at that tier one level. Uh, but in terms of our, what we do, like, the biggest thing is we don't want to waste anyone's time. And so like having a more efficient process where you say yes, no quickly makes sense. I mean, we only take calls with like one in six companies now. Um, and so if there's a reason based on the industry, based on terms, we're able to cycle that, that out. You know, secondly, we try to give reasons for why we're passing. Like, is it the market? Is it the product? Is it, you know, timing? Is it a portfolio conflict? And so we just have like general go-to language with that. And then we frame it as like, hey, you know, we can't get comfortable, but we wish you the best of the raise and we want to be respectful of your time. Like just, I think even having those extra lines in there does make a difference because we, we ultimately do want to see people succeed. Um, but I think also we care about the ecosystem as a whole. Um, and so I think people see the content we're putting out, they see the deals we are doing and like, hey, even if they don't invest in us, um, they still care. And we just try to remind people we invest in one out of a hundred companies, we can't do everything, but it doesn't mean that you're not great. It just means that we're, we're not a fit for you at this time. So all those things help. Um, and then we also, we just have like a mindset shift, right? Where we are stewards of capital, we're serving founders. Um, and I think because we're more focused on references, like we get referenced whenever we're fundraising, you know, people talk to our founders when they're considering taking us versus another firm. And I think just thinking about how every interaction you have is a chance to either make somebody feel better or worse about you. I think that has just helped us be more delicate and nuanced with how we how we treat founders that we're passing on. One of the things I want to go back to, because uh, I, I have I have to, I have to, I have to, going back to the fundraise. Yeah. Uh, so going from fund one to fund two, because Fund one, obviously incredibly difficult, but also once you get the subsequent funds, you have to show track record. You have to show results from that as well as you get to that point. But you had an oversubscribed fund to raise. From what I read, I think you were targeting maybe around 100 million and ended up raising 134 million. Take me through that second fundraise when compared to the first fundraise for you. It was a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Love hearing that. For a couple of reasons. The first reason was we were better at fundraising. Um, so it's not like we're starting from scratch. We have our yeah. materials. We know what strategies to do. We know how to get warm intros. We also have existing investors. And the presumption is like more likely than not, they're going to come back as long as you're doing things reasonably well. Um, I think we structured our process in a way that helped. 
So we had like preview the fund to raise with folks. We had a more efficient timeline. We got our existing on board first, and then we asked for new investors. One big thing was that corporations after you know the George Floyd murder, they were more willing to and had conviction and you know decisiveness around investing in black GPs. And so that's one thing we saw in the market, an opportunity just to get more capital, particularly from corporations. Um, so all those things worked out. Um, we did better at like screening our potential LPs. So we kind of knew before we went to a meeting if they would be more or less likely to want to invest. And so we just structured everything around being more efficient. I mean, most of our meetings were like two days a week. So even like we had dedicated fundraising blocks rather than it being haphazard. And we just like ran a professional operation. Um, so that's kind of how we approached it. I mean, we, we got it done in six months. It was oversubscribed, had a lot of return LPs, and then we just had a lot of new LPs as well. And so we feel really good about our, our, our focus. I mean, uh, we wanted to get people on that believed in what we were doing, but also wanted to invest in us over the long term. Just to wrap it up, though, I mean, we don't have a lot of performance numbers. I mean, we have deals we did, yeah. but it takes a long time. I mean, your fund two, you're still, you're still not, you don't have a lot of track record. You know, fund three will start to have distributed capital, and so that's really where the rubber meets the road, and people can start assessing us. But yeah. it's still a lot about the team and the strategy. It's about like, hey, are these guys actually? these people like are they actually building a world-class firm do you like the deals they've invested in do you like their sourcing strategy etc yeah the timing on that and obviously with what you're doing inherently it's like yeah people get it i think and and from fun one to fun two obviously being oversubscribed with that one it was a lot of more corporations because there's a limit to number of investors typically when you're raising a fund and you need bigger check sizes especially when you're getting to 134 million how did you go about that in terms of who you were targeting check size wise, how are we going to go about allowing certain people in versus not? Uh, because that is an issue eventually when you're raising, you can't allow the small checks in because you don't necessarily have room for that in terms of how the fundraise works out. How did that go thinking through that side of things, Jared? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, you it's push and pull, right? Because you have what you want and then you also have what the institutions will do. I mean, the biggest check we got for fund one was $5 million got several $5 million checks. We like, okay, that's the cap based on what our target was. For fund two, yeah. like, okay, we want 15, we got 10. <laughs> and then 10 <laughs> the biggest checks. So like, all right, we need to get more $10 million checks. So I think we had yeah. seven or eight $10 million checks. And then the rest was a little bit more mixed. In terms of composition, you know, we wanted as much institutional capital as possible, you know, endowments, pension funds, people that can write big checks that can scale with you. Um, that that was helpful. Uh, we also want people that know about VC. Like, do you actually, can you actually add value to your portfolio? Are you going to be less fickle if things change in the market? Uh, from yeah. there, though, we did see corporations as being key value adds. The capital is great. We also see them as potentially being acquirers for our companies, potentially being customers of our companies, and then just having a great brand name. Um, and then foundations, we like, I mean, they're, they can get limited in terms of how big checks they can write, but sometimes their process can be more efficient. And then they can also, they also have like good missions, right? They're nonprofits. They're really about, you know, they have, they have some cool things they're trying to do for the community. And so we wanted a mix of that. Individuals, we optimize people that can add value. So it was less about the check, more about the relationship. We love having GPs of VC and private equity because they invest for a living. They can be great mentors to us. 
They have great connections. So check, check, check. Um, we like operators, people that have ran companies before that can help us source deals, that can help us be advisors, et cetera. Those are great. And so we just want to get a mix. I mean, the limit is 100. We didn't want to be anywhere close to that. I think we ended up with like 76 or 77, uh, which is more than we wanted. We wanted to be sub 50. <laughs> but as we got more people, we, we thought that could be, you know, you could add a value we wanted you. Um, and one, one group I didn't talk about were funds of funds. They were really tough to get fund one. Fund two, they were more open to what we were doing. Uh, and we think they're good to have as well because they just see so many funds and they have a lot of insight about best practices. Um, so I think we got three or four funds of funds um, who we're very excited to have because they can just be higher touch, more value add LPs and some of the other groups. Yeah, and I really appreciate you sharing that because again, I'm always thinking about just the uh, potential fund managers coming up, especially diverse fund managers and even founders who are raising just the level of strategy and how you think through this process. It's a lot and it's helpful because as you're thinking through this and going to the next raise and the next raise and to know these things. And one of the things I want to discuss was your your angel program as well, because again, helping more kind of diverse uh, check writers. How did that program come about? How's it structured? I think you ran your first cohort already. How did that go? Yeah, so our angel program came about a couple of ways. One, we heard about um, other VC scout programs and we're not yet ready to have like Harlem Capital Light scout deals. We're not really ready to give other people capital. Like we're still a new fund. We want to make sure we keep our brand and everything pretty tight. But we do want to bring more people into the ecosystem. So that was one. I think the second thing is we um, were looking at a deal and we were trying to get into a syndicate with a tier one. It didn't work out. And they actually didn't bring in another new fund outside of the lead, but they had a bunch of angels. So we saw how powerful it was to have like a lead, existing investors, and then just have a bunch of angels that had like literally direct experience in that category and how powerful it could be yep. from a capital raising and uh, value add perspective. So like, all right, man, it would, it would be so great if we could do that as well. So that's how we thought about it. And the challenge was just like, how do you make sure it is interesting, informative, um, and not too burdensome for us when we already have the intern program, which is not going away. Um, so it went pretty well. I mean, I think we had seven um, operators in, in the program. Um, they all have really cool experiences. I think they all had, you know, maybe between five to 10 years of experience, they all have capital, they all want to do it. These people that were like primed to be good angel investors, but maybe didn't have the playbooks or just didn't have a lot of time. So like, hey, let's like give you all the insight that we have, have you work with some high priority deals, have you into the fold and make it rigorous like our intern program. Uh, and it worked out pretty well. Um, I think, you know, we've got some suggestions that we could do a little bit lower touch, higher volume, but we can st we prefer the curation method. Like we want everyone who's affiliated with our brand to have a good death in death experience. And that could be an advocate and champion for us going forward. When you say a little more higher volume, what, what do you mean exactly on, on that? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, we have, we had for our angel program, we had a multiple stage interview process. It's six weeks. We actually have them work on high priority deals. And so it's basically the same load as an intern program. And we can't have more, much more than six or seven people. So I guess someone could say, hey, what if you did it multiple times a year, had 10 or 20 people per class and have them do less work and easier uh, interview process? That's not a trait yet we're willing to do. I think there is some merit to some other firms doing it. Uh, but that's what I mean. It's just that like, hey, if we did less either in terms of assessing or in terms of deals, 
then maybe we can have more people on board. Yeah, that makes sense. And and one of the things I know, like I've kind of alluded to, but you haven't actually mentioned your your mission, your what you're trying to do in terms of investing a thousand uh, diverse founders in the next twenty years. With that, that's that's going to be huge in terms of impact and how it's going to you know, start to change the ecosystem. But obviously, there's a lot more that needs to be done. I would love to hear more about what you think could be done, should be done, steps people can take in terms of, I think the emerging managers is one part of it, but how you think about really changing this whole environment that SBC. Yes, I mean, I love the mantra, hire wire. Like that's how you get more GPs in, um, either hiring them into existing firms or giving them money as LPs, right? Um, and also getting more people funded so they can have successful access and become GPs. So we think about the whole ecosystem. We actually have a page called the Harlem Capital Flywheel. And we just think about like all the steps, right? You need friends and family, you need angel capital, then you need strong seed investors, then you need strong downstream capital, you need LPs to fund the GPs, um, you need strong operators who are coming back as angels and helping advise these companies. Like we're thinking about all these nodes. We're thinking about our, our how do we get more people into these firms? That's our intern program. Like we're thinking about every single kind of thing that touches the VC ecosystem and how do we improve upon that? Um, the biggest gap right now is there's not enough people of color check writers, period. So how do you get more yeah. capital in the hands of them? Um, we want the really established firms to hire more people of color. It's gonna be tough though, because these are small organizations. They don't turn over that much. So yes, maybe they hire, you know, a, one or two a year max, yeah, right? But it's not going to change at the pace we need it. Um, so we've seen, I think like half through our reports, we have a diverse um, VC report and like over half of those GPs started their own firms, which sounds great. It really means they probably couldn't get jobs at other firms. They want to do their own um, in some cases. And we're like, all right, well, we do know that it's the most efficient way to get more diverse GPs. So assuming that that is the most diverse, the most efficient way, we need more LP capital because we know the talent's there. They may not have the 20 year tracker because VC firms haven't hired black and Latino people historically, but they have everything else. Um, they have the things that actually are meaningful for driving returns and they're more primed to this next generation of companies. They have unique skill sets, unique lenses and ways that can really drive innovation. Um, so, Capital has been the biggest thing. And I think the corporations have done a really good job with, you know, stepping out there. Hopefully that can see us persist over time. We like other VCs that are stepping in. Um, you know, Inside Partners just announced they did a $15 million uh, investments in diverse managers. We were one of the recipients and like, that is great. Uh, yeah. But you still need the scalable capital, the endowments, the foundations, the pension funds to all step up. And I think the structural challenge is that like the the playbook and the school of thought is like you want fewer gps in your portfolio and you just want to give them almost all your capital and that's going to bias against newer entrants who are going to be more diverse and so every time we get an opportunity we say hey you need to like change that and so like <laughs> i don't know exactly how it works from portfolio allocation perspective but what i do know is that if you think about your constituents, you know, pension funds, the, the teachers, the firefighters, et cetera. And you think about, you know, endowments who have diverse student bodies, they owe it to them to have more diverse representation in their manager pool.
Um, so we'll continue to beat that horse. I mean, in the meantime, all we'll do is make money uh, for our LPs, and I think that will help them is like once they start seeing the performance, uh, then we'll be better suited to make the case for having more diverse managers. Because yeah, I think we're gonna outperform, right? It's, the bar is so high that to get to this point, you're gonna be yeah. very convicted, have a great strategy, you're gonna stick around, everything's gonna be tight. And so, you know, there is arbitrage still by backing uh, people of color managers. Yeah, and and to that point, I know we're almost out of time, so I want to wrap things up here. But for the for the people, whether it be working at tech companies or thinking about just anyone really, who people of color or women who are thinking, oh, I think I want to start a fund because they hear this conversation, they hear those conversations from other people around the same thing. It's like more diverse check writers. What would you tell them as a starting point? What would you tell them they should? do or you know the path to follow potentially because you guys pulled it off which is amazing seems like you're in a great trajectory but obviously we need more so what else would you tell them as we kind of wrap things up here yeah the first thing i would say to anyone who is starting a fund is why you like why are you uniquely positioned to do that uh quick anecdote we were a couple months into fundraising we had a meeting with a potential lp at the harvard club we're in the library it's quiet and he asks us why you, and we give him an answer. He's not satisfied with the answer. He stands up and he's yelling at us, why you? And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm so embarrassed. I want to crawl under the table and run out of here. But like, we'll never forget that. And by the time we had uh, a meeting with an, a huge product person that next week, like we were prepared. And so make sure you have an answer to that question. Like you're trying to separate people from their money. You have to have a compelling reason for why you're uniquely positioned to do this. Um, the second thing is like, what are you, your unique strengths? And what work for others may not work for you, but you you probably have advantages that they don't have. One thing that we did have is private equity experience. We were in New York. We had access to mentors and stuff that worked at private equity firms. They are liquid. They have plenty of capital. They have plenty of connections to top LPs. And so we just started with that market and it worked out phenomenally well for us. Um, and so think about it. Like, do you have family office connections? Do you have a lot of VC connections? Do you have great operating experience? Like whatever it is that makes you special, just double and triple down on that. Because if you don't, then you're just waste time and energy. I would say like find those two key things and just like keep doing it over and over again. And then once you get people to support you, get them to introduce you to their friends. And from there, you just keep keep the flywheel going. I love it. There, there's so much more we could get into. But we're out of time here. Jared, where can people go to learn more about Harlem Capital, connect with you as well if they'd like to? Sure. Two ways. Go to our website, harlem.capital. Just type that in. Everything you could possibly want to know about us is there. Um, also, follow us on social, Twitter and Instagram, LinkedIn. All of it is Harlem Capital, at harlem.capital, or sorry, at Harlem Capital. And from there, uh, you'll see all of our constant uh, posts. Perfect. Jared, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Justin. It's a pleasure. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at vitalizevc, or you can follow me on Twitter at justingordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.